welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on October 30th, Lord's Day Service. I'd like to direct your attention this morning are found in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 23 through 31. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, show us how to be faithful in everything we have received. Preserve us from all the scandals that distract our hearts from obedience. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What is possible and what is impossible? According to verse 27, you must renovate your notion of what is possible and impossible around this principle. Entering the kingdom of heaven is impossible with man, but possible with God. What human beings cannot do, God can do. The moral arithmetic of human beings says, what must I do to be saved? Tell me what it is, and if it's reasonable, I'll consider it. The moral arithmetic of Jesus says, salvation of the rich requires a miracle, and miracles are God's specialty. Notice the plain statements in this passage. What is difficult in the kingdom of God? Verse 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 24, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So verses 23 through 25 speak about what is difficult, and then verse 27 talks about what's impossible. And salvation is impossible with man because it requires costly repentance, as the rich young ruler learned. It's hard for any person, rich or not, it's hard for any person who treasures something above Christ to enter the kingdom of heaven. The rich young ruler could not let go of that thing which he treasured above Christ. And so he walked away sad. 
costly repentance, especially that of rich young rulers, which you'll remember from three or four weeks ago when we preached on the rich young, rich young ruler. You'll remember he's basically a corrupt government bureaucrat who is abusing his power and plundering the people and getting rich off of their backs. And what we learn is that costly repentance, especially that of corrupt government bureaucrats, requires a work of God. It requires a miracle. And it is worth noting that all of Jesus' teachings about the danger of money come when he is in Judea. That is, when he is surrounded by those people who abuse their political power to get rich. So that in particular is the rich he is talking to. The rich who abuse their government power to get wealth. That's who he's talking to. And of course, in our minds, there are few people further away from the kingdom of God than corrupt beltway politicians who abuse their power and plunder the people to get rich. But the point isn't how far away they are. The point is that God specializes in the impossible. You might think it's impossible for those politicians and those bureaucrats who abuse their power in Washington, D.C. to be saved. And that's true. But God specializes in the impossible. God can do the miracle. And so we see that God can override the problem of politically corrupt affluence. And yet we still have these plain statements that we must reckon with, beginning in verse 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. See, verses 23 through 25 are warnings. And we must understand the warnings. We must receive the warnings and take heed of the warnings. And as we think about what Jesus says about wealth and what all of the Bible says about wealth, it's really better to consider Jesus more as a philosopher than an accountant. Jesus does not talk about wealth like an accountant talks about wealth. Jesus isn't talking about spreadsheets and formulas. No, Jesus talks about wealth like a philosopher. And we might get the question wrong when it comes to money. Because the questions we ask are things like, well, is money good or bad? Or the question is, well, how much money is too much money? Just tell me, just tell me what's too much, and I'll give away all the rest so I can be on good terms with God. Or we ask, well, what percentage should the wealthy give away and keep for themselves? I mean, I'm not even going to consider the tax deduction. I'm feeling really generous today. Just tell me the percentage. How much can I get, give, uh, should I give away, and how much do I get to keep? Just tell me, and I'll do it. See, those are questions of the industrialized West. That's the question from a technological society. That's the question of an accountant. But that's not the question that the Bible answers because it's not a cut and dried sort of thing. We want everything simplified. We want it cut and dried, black and white, good or bad. Just give me the formula, give me the Excel spreadsheet. I'll plug in my numbers, then my money will do that, and then I don't have to worry about it anymore. The problem is Jesus doesn't talk like that. Jesus isn't talking about money like an accountant talks about money, and Jesus isn't answering the questions of an industrialized technological society. And so Jesus' pronouncements about money aren't formulas. They're warnings. They're principles. And it's about wisdom. We need wisdom in the matter of money. We don't need formulas. We don't need spreadsheets. I mean, yeah, they have a purpose. That's not the point here. The point is you need wisdom. You don't need an accountant. Scripture 
wants you to have wisdom on money matters. And so we obviously can't do an entire theology of money in the short time we have together, but we can seek biblical wisdom about money and wealth. And so let's start with the basics, the absolute basics. What ought to rule our life, God or money? Are possessions to be served or are they to help us to serve God? Now, those are probably easy questions for you. I have a feeling that everyone in the room knows the answer to those questions. But let's say it out loud together while we're all sitting here so our kids can even hear us say it. God and not money ought to rule our life. Possessions become a problem when possessions become our master. And possessions can beget hazards. Every experience of your life teaches you that with human beings, when money is at stake, the stakes are higher. And so sure, money itself may be morally neutral, but money is not neutral in our loyalties. Sure, money itself may be morally neutral, but money is not neutral so far as the temptation to sin is concerned. In other words, money has high voltage. It's an explosive power because of how we crave it, how we desire it, how we revere it, how we'll even behave immorally, as long as no one else knows, to get it. And living in a prosperous society does not make you immune from Jesus' statements in verses 23 through 25. Covetousness can take residence in your soul, even if everyone else around you has wealth. Covetousness can destroy your soul. Once it gets into your soul, it will work destruction. And you know the statements of Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6 when he says, the love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money, the love of consuming, the love of acquisition, the love of possessions feed the appetite of self-gratification, which then deadens the instincts for self-sacrifice. In other words, to frame it like Jesus does in verse 31, the appetite for money makes people put themselves first. Now, the point of these sayings from Jesus is not that Christianity promotes poverty. The point is that because money has sway over us, because money has a particular sway over us, we need spirit-wrought, biblically-grounded wisdom in money matters. And since we need wisdom in the matter of money, Let's be wise. Let's pursue that wisdom with the help of the Spirit grounded in Scripture. And so let's consider five biblical principles of wealth. The first biblical principle of wealth is that wealth is not intended to satisfy your soul. In other words, it's not in the nature of money to satisfy people's souls. And this is best illustrated through what David Myers calls the American paradox. And what is the paradox? Well, the paradox 
is that we have never had so much, and yet we've never had so little. On the one side, never have we had more choices. Never have we had more affluence, more technology, more appliances, more comfort, better cars, better houses, better dental care. But the other side, though, is that by every measure, depression and unhappiness has never been more prevalent. Anxiety and loneliness has never been higher. Confusion has never been more widespread. As a society, marriages don't hold together. Children are more demoralized than ever. Morally, we're living in a disaster zone. Over half the children in the United States are born out of wedlock, which is a sure predicator of poverty for those children. And here's the thing. You already know all of this. This is old news. The paradox of the never been richer and never been more depressed is so prevalent that it's common knowledge. The mistake is to think that it's new. The mistake is to blame it all on modern technology. Now for sure, smartphones, social media, pornography at your beck and call, they've all exasperated the problem. But it doesn't cause the problem. Back in the 1830s, Alexis de Tocqueville, in his 600-page exposition of American society, he observed what he called a strange melancholy in America. A strange melancholy. What was he describing? Well, he was describing the fact that all of our getting and spending amounts to little more than fidgeting while we wait for death. In other words, money is often a false promise that material prosperity will wipe away all tears. And when money is viewed that way, then money is an idol. Christianity teaches that the human soul is satisfied not when we acquire money, but when we're reconciled to God. See, the idol of money is in fundamental disagreement with the warnings of Jesus in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, when he says, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 8 through 10, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Acts chapter 20, verse 35, there Paul says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Which means, again, the problem isn't acquiring money. The problem isn't even having money or spending money. The problem is loving it. The problem is idolizing it. The problem is being controlled by it. And so when you love money, you know that money is your idol. And there's no simple fix for that. There's no simple fix for the sin that comes from greed and idolatry. 
That's why Jesus had the rich young ruler repent, sell all that, they ha sell all that he had. The fix is repentance and faith. But that's not easy. That's why the rich young ruler walked away sad. The idol of wealth invites you to place your hope in money. The idol of wealth teaches that taking is better than giving. The idol of wealth tempts you to covet what your neighbor has. The idol of wealth convinces you that you've been wronged because others possess more than you possess. When Jesus says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, he's saying that if you persist in the idolatry of money, then the spiritual emptiness that marks you now will be but a sample of your eternal destiny. And so the first biblical principle of wealth is that wealth is not intended to satisfy your soul. The second biblical principle of wealth is that wealth makes discipleship difficult. Difficult, that's the word Jesus uses in verses 23 and 24. Then he uses the word impossible in verse 27. In verse 25 it says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now the needle here is a sewing needle. The camel is the biggest animal in Palestine. And maybe you've heard that common interpretation that the eye of the needle was a gate in Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying it's hard for the camel to squeeze through the gate. That's not what this is referring to. That interpretation was first floated in the 11th century and it caught on in a few commentaries and they just started repeating it. That, but that is not what he's referring to here. The needle here is a sewing needle. Jesus is saying that it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a sewing needle. And he's comparing that to a rich person entering heaven. So verse 25 is just a proverbial way of stating the impossible. And indeed, verse 27 confirms that when it uses the word impossible. And the point here is that wealth makes discipleship difficult. Again, that's the word Jesus uses in verses 23 and 24. The implication for us as we read this passage is that we need to come to terms with our attachment to money, possessions, and worldly goods. And they tend to provide a false security. That's their danger. They tend to provide a false security that makes undivided loyalty to God difficult. You cannot serve both God and money, Jesus said elsewhere. You see, riches tend to foster a sense of self-sufficiency. They provide safety and security. And in the case of the rich young ruler, wealth became his idol. And Jesus tells him to give up his idolatrous relationship with wealth. See, when you have idols, you must give them up and follow Christ. And so for you, if your idol is wealth, then you must sell all that you have and follow Christ. For you, if your idol is something else, then you must repent of that and follow Christ. When you have idols, you must give them up and follow Christ. And Jesus is saying that riches can be a hindrance. And the dilemma for the rich is that lepers and blind people want to be set free from that which inhibits them. But, but rich people usually do not. And yet God requires the same of everybody. All 
must give up whatever stands in the way of total commitment to following Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus told the rich young ruler to sell everything. And so the first biblical principle of wealth is that wealth is not intended to satisfy your soul. The second principle is that wealth makes discipleship difficult. The third principle is that wealth given away for Christ is worth the sacrifice. Look with me at verses 28 through 30. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Wait, is Jesus saying you're going to have a hundred mothers in heaven? I don't think so. The point is that if you lose something to follow Christ, you will find in the kingdom a hundred to replace the thing you lost. Now this does not mean, as the prosperity cults teach, that if you give money to God's kingdom work, then you will get more money back in this life. The point is that the more we give on earth, that is, the more we sacrifice on earth to follow Christ, the more we gain eternal reward. The point is that the sacrifice of following Christ, the sacrifice of giving, is not without blessing. If you are generous, you will be blessed for that. And the reward far surpasses any sacrifice we might make. And it's the paradox of the sin nature that selfish living is the fastest way to destroy yourself. And so the first biblical principle about wealth is that wealth is not intended to satisfy your soul. The second principle is that wealth makes discipleship difficult. The third principle is that wealth given for Christ is worth the sacrifice. And the fourth principle of wealth is that wealth is a certain kind of calling. Wealth is a certain kind of calling. If wealth is not your idol, and if your wealth was not earned uh, through illicit ways, that is, if your wealth was earned virtuously, then that means wealth is your calling. Now, if your wealth is your idol and you got that wealth through corrupt means, then you need to sell all that you have and follow Christ. But if your wealth is not your idol, and that wealth was achieved through virtuous action, then wealth for you is your calling. And so if you have wealth, it is your job to obey your calling. This is a gift of the Lord to you. Abundance is a gift given by the kindness of God, and it comes with responsibility. All callings come with responsibility, and the wealthy too have responsibility. Possessions and wealth have been entrusted to you, and you will one day render an account for them, Luke 16, 2 suggests. And God is the one who will do the accounting, and this God abominates pride. So Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 
They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, there in verse 18, Paul says to the rich that if you're rich, then you should be rich in good works. In other words, use your money to do the sorts of things, the sorts of good works that only you can do with money. Be generous. Be ready to share. And in particular, wealthy people in the church, wealthy people in the kingdom of God are uniquely placed to help build God's kingdom. That's your calling. If you have wealth, that's a certain kind of calling, and your calling is to help build the kingdom of God with your money. And then the fifth biblical principle of wealth that we have time to consider this morning is that you should possess wealth as if you had no wealth. Listen to that again. You should possess wealth as if you had no wealth. And I lift that straight from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 30, where Paul says, Let those who buy as though they had no goods. In other words, you should buy, you should spend, you should use your wealth as if you had no goods. Now, what does Paul mean here? Well, that's a really good question. This is 1 Corinthians 7, this section where there's all these statements and it's really confusing and there's a lot of things going on here beyond just this statement about money. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 7, verses 29 through 31, this principle emerges. And the principle is this. Those who use this world should be so affected as if they did not use it. Those who use this world should be so affected as if they do not use it. He's talking about marriage here and money. But concerning buying, because that's what's mentioned in verse 30, concerning buying... Concerning commerce, this means that we must bear abundance moderately. You must buy as if you were not buying. That is, you must live with your abundance within reasonable limits, not in the extreme. This is how you enjoy food. We know how this works. You can enjoy food and you can give thanks to the Lord for that food and you can be nourished by it and filled with joy by it. But there is a certain point in which you enjoy that food too much and then it becomes the sin of gluttony. Likewise with money. If God has blessed you with money, you can have that money, you can enjoy that money, you can thank God for that money. But there is a certain point in your buying and selling and spending and all this where it becomes sinful. And so your money will either divert you from the narrow path or to the narrow path. If you're unfamiliar with the narrow path metaphor, it comes from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. And the narrow path leads to the kingdom of heaven. And so the things of the world can either help you cultivate godliness or they can destroy godliness in your life. And so the wise Christian will guard against excessive indulgence with their money. And they shouldn't feel guilty for having money. They should enjoy God's gifts, but they do need to be on guard. Because when the flesh boils over with excessive extravagance, the result is that distracting aspirations fill the mind so that you cannot discern the path 
the narrow path to the kingdom of God. And on this, again, the Bible gives no formula. There's no Christian spreadsheet that tells you exactly what percentage goes over here and then how much you can keep for yourself. There's no formula for spending money or even how much you can have. We are told in Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so we have to fight. If we have money, if you have money, you must fight to keep your trust in the Lord rather than in your chariots and horses. We must diligently guard against turning the Lord's gifts into a hindrance so that it becomes difficult to trust in the Lord. And so how do we stay on guard? Well, use the gifts to the end God created them. And when it comes to money, that means learning to be content in plenty and learning to be content in hunger. Learning to be content in abundance and learning to be content in need. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 12. In other words, the person who can't learn to be satisfied with a slender meal is the one likely to be destroyed by the five-course meal. And so in conclusion, we need to reflect on Jesus' words about the difficulty that comes with having money because they come from eternity's angle of vision. And from that perspective, from eternity's perspective, our covetousness here on earth looks rather silly. When you invest only in yourself, only in your security, only in your comfort, and only in your pleasure, you need to know that you are making a bad investment. And you'll remember back in Mark chapter 9, verses 43 through 48, Jesus advised radical surgery on hands, feet, and eyes if they cause you to sin. How much more should we heed Jesus' warnings? That when our soul is anchored to money, then we're walking the wide path to destruction. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, through your Spirit and your Word, you search us and you know us. You know when we sit down and when we get up. You surround our path and our lying down. You know all of our ways and you know our motivations when it comes to money. And so, Father, help us to pour out all that fullness before you, for then we receive more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.